Welcome to the U.S. Bancorp second quarter 2023 earnings conference call. Following a re review of the results, there will be a formal question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, please press 1, then 0 on your phone. If you'd like to withdraw, please press 1, then 0 again. This call will be recorded and available for replay beginning today at approximately 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. I will now turn the conference call over to George Anderson, Senior Vice President and Director of Investor Relations for U.S. Bank Corps. Thank you, Brad, and good morning, everyone. With me today are Andy Cesari, our Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer, Terry Dolan, our Vice Chair and Chief Financial Officer, and John Stern, Senior Executive Vice President and Head of Finance. During initial prepared remarks, Andy and Terry will be referencing a slide presentation. A copy of the presentation, our earnings release, and supplemental analyst schedules are available on our website at usbank.com. Please note that any forward-looking statements made during today's call are subject to risk and uncertainty. Factors that could materially change our current forward-looking assumptions are described on page two of today's presentation, our press release, our Form 10-K, and in subsequent re reports on file with the SEC. Following our prepared remarks, Andy, Terry, and John will take any questions that you have. I will now turn the call over to Andy. Thanks, George. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining our call. I'll begin on slide three. The second quarter was highlighted by our successful conversion of Union Bank and a meaningful increase in our common equity tier one ratio to 9.1%, 60 basis points higher than the first quarter, driven by earnings accretion and balance sheet optimization actions. Earnings per share totaled 84 cents in the second quarter, including 28 cents per share of notable items. Excluding the impact of notable items, earnings per share was $1.12. Slide four provides reported and adjusted income statement results and other key metrics. Our second quarter results were supported by new customer account growth and deepening of relationships across our business lines, as well as continued disciplined expense management. Net interest income was lower compared with the first quarter, primarily due to pressures on deposit pricing. However, momentum in fee income businesses continue strong. One of the strengths of our business model is our diverse and stable funding that includes a mix of both consumer and operational wholesale deposits. This quarter, while our average deposit balances decreased by 2.6% link quarter, period and deposits were higher by 3.2% or approximately $522 billion, largely reflective of seasonal operational deposit flows in areas such as our corporate banking and trust businesses. Credit quality metrics remain strong versus pre-pandemic levels, but are normalizing as expected. This quarter, we strengthen our balance sheet by increasing the loan loss reserve, reflective of our prudent approach to credit risk management. Slide five uh, provides key performance metrics. Excluding notable items, our return on average assets was 1.07%, and our return on tangible common equity was 22.3%. Slide six provides a summary of our recently completed conversion of Union Bank. Following our main systems conversion on Memorial Day weekend, all credit card, trust, and investment accounts were transitioned to our platform in June. Early indications are encouraging, and I'm even more confident today of the strategic and financial merits of this deal. We continue to expect meaningful revenue opportunities, and our cost energy targets remain intact. One highlight is the Union Bank customers are adopting our digital capabilities more quickly than expected. As of June 30th, just one month following conversion, we've had over a half a million enrollments in our digital product offerings, and this number continues to grow. Our teams are working diligently to leverage the value of, the, of overlaying all of our products and services to Union Bank customers as we continue to provide, and we will continue to provide updates on our progress. I'll now turn the call over to Terry, who will provide more detail on the quarter. Thanks, Andy. 
Turning to slide seven, our balanced mix of, custom, of consumer, corporate, and commercial deposits continues to be a key source of strength for the bank. As Andy highlighted, while average total deposits declined 2.6% or $13.1 billion on a link quarter basis, we ended the period with $522 billion of deposits, representing a 3.2% increase in ending balances on a link quarter. This quarter, our end of period percent of non-interest bearing deposits declined to approximately 20% from 25% in the first quarter due to both industry dynamics and a change we made to union bank retail accounts at conversion. Specifically, about half of the decline was related to an increase in deposit volumes and mix shift, while the other half primarily, uh, was primarily driven by a con customer-friendly product conversion decision by us. To create a more positive customer experience, we upgraded Union Bank customers to our interest-bearing Bank Smartly uh, checking product, which uh, offers a better checking solution as well as other benefits. This change will provide customer retention benefits without a material impact on our net interest margin. Given current interest rate volatility and the significant competition for deposits across the industry, we now expect our cumulative deposit beta to be in the mid 40% range by the end of this rate cycle, slightly higher than our previous expectation, but consistent with the deposit pricing dynamics in the industry. On slide eight, average, loan, average total loans this quarter were $389 billion, which was flat on a link quarter basis and up 19.9% year over year. <clears throat> Commercial real estate loans represent approximately 14% of our total average loan portfolio, with commercial real estate office exposure representing only 2% of total loans and 1% of total commitments. Our office exposure is well-balanced among suburban, specialty, and central business districts and had a weighted average loan-to-value ratio of approximately 55% at initial underwriting. Given current macro factors as well as other portfolio considerations, we increased the reserve ratio for commercial real estate office loans to 8.5%. Turning to slide nine, we reported diluted earnings per share of 84 cents for the quarter, or $1.12 per share after adjusting for notable items in the amount of $575 million, or 28 cents per diluted common share. Notable items this quarter included $310 million of merger and integration related charges associated with the acquisition of Union Bank, as well as $265 million related to balance sheet optimization and capital management actions, largely driven by a provision charge of $243 million related to the securitization of approximately $4.4 billion of indirect auto loans, as well as an additional $4.2 billion sale of Union Bank mortgage loans. These moves enable us to, uh, to more effectively position the balance sheet for profitable growth and optimized returns. Slide 10 provides a more detailed earnings summary for the quarter. Turning to slide 11, net interest income on a fully taxable equivalent basis totaled approximately $4.4 billion, which represented a 4.7% decrease on a linked quarter basis and a 28.4% increase from a year ago due to the impact of rising rates in the acquisition of Union Bank. Our net interest margin declined from 3.10% uh, in the first quarter to 2.90% in the second quarter, which is somewhat lower than expected. 
The link quarter decline was primarily due to the impact of maintaining higher cash levels given the debt ceiling concerns and deposit pricing pressures partially offset by higher rates on earning assets. Slide 12 highlights trends in non-interest income. Non-interest income increased 8.7% or $219 million on a link quarter basis, driven by higher payment services revenue, trust investment management fees, and commercial product revenues. Within payment services, revenue increased $112 million on a link quarter basis, reflecting credit card, uh, growth, uh, credit card revenue growth of $62 million, or 17.2%, driven by higher margins and sales volume, and an increase in merchant processing revenue of $49 million, or 12.7%, driven by pricing. Also noteworthy were increases in trust and investment management fees of $31 million, or 5.3%, driven by core business growth, and commercial product revenue of $24 million, or 7.2%, driven by strong debt capital markets activity in the quarter. Compared with a year ago, non-interest income for the company increased $178 million, or 7.0%, largely driven by higher core fee income. Turning to slide 13, reported non-interest expense for the company totaled $4.6 billion in the second quarter, which included $310 million of merger and integration-related charges. Non-interest expense, as adjusted, decreased $52 million, or 1.2% on a linked quarter basis. Slide 14 shows credit quality trends, which continue to be strong from a historical perspective, but are normalizing as expected. The ratio of non-performing assets to loans and other real estate was 0.29% at June 30th, compared to 0.30% at March 31st, and 0.23% a year ago. Our second quarter net charge-off ratio of 0.35% uh, as adjusted, increased five basis points from a first quarter level of 0.30% as adjusted and was higher when compared to the second quarter uh, 2022 level of 0.20%. Our allowance for credit losses as of June 30th totaled $7.7 billion or 2.03% uh, of period on loans. Turning to slide 15, we accelerated our capital actions and ended the quarter with a CET1 capital ratio of 9.1%. The 60 basis points linked quarter increase in the CET1 ratio reflected 20 basis points of earnings accretion net of distributions and an additional 40 basis points attributable to risk-weighted asset and other balance sheet optimization initiatives with low to neutral earnings impact. During the quarter, we received the results of the Federal Reserve's 2023 stress test and we expect to be subject to the minimum stress capital buffer requirement of 2.5%, which is unchanged from last year, despite this year's more stressful economic scenario and an additional $1.4 billion of merger-related charges with limited recognition of cost synergies related to Union Bank. I will provide third quarter and updated full year 2023 forward-looking guidance on, pay on slide 16. Starting with third quarter 2023 guidance, we expect net interest income of between 4.2 and $4.4 billion in the third quarter. 
Total revenue as adjusted is estimated to be in the range of $6.9 to $7.1 billion, including approximately $75 million of purchase accounting accretion. Total non-interest expense as adjusted is expected to be approximately $4.3 billion, inclusive of approximately $120 million of core deposit intangible amortization related to the Union Bank acquisition. Our income tax rate as adjusted is expected to be approximately 23 to 24% on a taxable equivalent basis. We expect merger and integration charges of between 150 to $200 million in the third quarter. I will now provide updated guidance for the full year. For 2023, net interest income is expected to be in the range of 17.5 to $18.0 billion. Total revenue as adjusted is now expected to be in the range of 28.0 to $29.0 billion, inclusive of approximately $330 million of full year purchase accounting accretion. Total non-interest expense as adjusted for the year is expected to be approximately $17 billion, inclusive of approximately $500 million of core deposit intangible amortization related to Union Bank. Our estimated full year income tax rate on a taxable equivalent basis as adjusted is expected to be approximately 23 to 24%. We continue to expect to have 900 million to $1 billion of merger and integration charges in 2023, and total merger and integration costs of approximately $1.4 billion consistent with earlier guidance. I will now hand it back to Andy for closing remarks. Thanks, Terry. I'll finish up on slide 17. The strength and stability of our balance sheet remains a differentiator for our company, and these metrics indicate, as these metrics indicate, we are well capitalized and prepared for a potentially more challenging economic environment given our strong liquidity, diversified business mix, and consistent and disciplined approach to credit risk management. Building capital remains a top priority as we prepare for Category 2 designation, and we are confident in our ability to execute on our strategic growth opportunities and key initiatives. Following the successful conversion of Union Bank this quarter, we enter the second half of the year well positioned as a national banking franchise with increased scale, broader reach, and meaningful revenue growth opportunities provided by the addition of 1.2 million new consumer and small business customers. Across the business, from consumer to wealth management and commercial to business banking, we see significant opportunities to provide legacy Union Bank customers with a broad set of our products and services and industry-leading digital capabilities. Additionally, the $900 million of identified cost synergies are still expected to be fully reflected in run rate savings as we head into 2024. Let me close by thanking our employees for all that they do to help provide exceptional service that makes us a destination of choice for our clients and a valued partner to all our stakeholders. We'll now open up the call to Q&A. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press 1, then 0 on your phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press 1, then 0 again. Once again, if you have a question, please press 1, then 0 on your phone. We'll first go to Scott Safers with Piper Sandler. Please go ahead. Morning, Scott. Hey. Um, I was hoping maybe we could, could start out with a, a couple of thoughts or expand the thoughts on capital, maybe just sort of a, a refresher on anticipated capital builds from here, especially in light of just how, how quickly you – 
just how quick the pace was in the second quarter. And then, you know, ideally sort of what you're targeting, presumably under uh, category two rules and, and when, uh, when you might get there in, in your view. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, we ended up at 9.1% CET1 at the end of the second quarter. Our expectation uh, now, you know, through the rest of this year is that we'll be at least at 9.5% by the end of the year. And, you know, that's going to be a function of uh, earnings accretion, net of uh, distributions, as well as some continued um, actions from a risk-weighted asset perspective. You know, we uh, we had originally articulated about 50 basis points uh, of risk-weighted asset um, optimization uh, over kind of the two-year time horizon. We felt like we could accelerate that a lot because the vast majority of them were, you know, what I would call low to uh, neutral impact on earnings accretion. We still have a number of different levers that we can pull, uh, you know, some of which we'll uh, be able to execute on this year some of which is uh, in preparation for uh, 2024. But you know, we feel uh, very confident that we have a, uh, a game plan in order to be able to get to at least nine and a half by the end of this year and to be in a position to be able to fully adopt uh, Category 2 by the end of 2024, if necessary. Okay. All right. Perfect. Thank you. And then maybe a question on um, the deposits. Appreciate all the, the commentary on the non-interest-bearing runoff being um, I guess about half driven by the product change as you integrated the union bank customers. Um, but just, just given the, you know, sort of the optics of it, just curious about any thoughts that, you know, is that pretty much done or would you expect for the broader or entirety of the firm, could NIB balances still continue to um, flow out just in light of where interest rates are and where would you see those flushing out maybe as a percent of total deposits? Hey, Scott, this is John. So, you know, in terms of, of uh, the DDA uh, mix, uh, you illustrated that correctly. We moved about $15 billion of deposits over into uh, that, in, that bank-smartly interest checking product, and so that gets us to about a 20% uh, ratio. We think that that's about where we land here. It'll be plus or minus, of course, as we kind of go through the quarters, but we think that we're at a, we're at a, a low point here. Perfect. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Yep. And next, we go to John Pincari with Evercore. Please go ahead. Good morning, John. Good morning. <clears throat> Regarding your non-interest income guidance of the 17 and a half to 18, you know, beyond the, the uh, non-interest bearing mix commentary that you just provided, can you also help unpack that guidance in terms of overall deposit growth expectations, as well as um, maybe the, the margin assumption behind that and uh, and low growth as well, if, if possible. Thanks. Sure. Uh, this is John again. So, you know, a couple things I would say maybe just to, to provide additional context. As you saw in our results, we saw a big increase in our deposits uh, up 3%, um, you know, on a, on a period ending basis to $522 billion. And then we had, with, as Terry mentioned about our capital actions, we had uh, loans drop uh, a start point of about 2% given the auto and the mortgage uh, sale that we, we talked about uh, within our, our, con our comments. And so uh, as I think about those things, uh, you know, we, we will have the ability to uh, be a little bit more disciplined and moderate in our deposit pricing as we, as we go forward, given that, that, uh, that, line, that line of thinking. 
And in addition, I think that, you know, as we bring on new loans, uh, those loans are coming in at, at wider spreads, although loan growth is, is a little bit stalled as there's a little bit less demand for that in the, in, in, in the, in the near term here. And the mix here uh, of, of loans should be more favorable as we're bringing on cards and, and less in mortgage and auto. So those are kind of the puts and takes to how we came up with the, the net interest uh, income uh, guidance. And then I, I think you made a comment about deposits there as well, and I can just touch on that. You know, I think on, on deposit side, uh, we would, even though we had a, a large seasonal uplift uh, as typical in, in the second quarter from our, our uh, corporate trust and commercial businesses that bring in, in deposit balances, uh, as that begins to normalize, we think we're probably in, in line with the industry, uh, which we anticipate being more of a decline uh, given the quantitative tightening and all the other sorts of things that are headwinds for deposits in the industry. Yeah, and the other, the other thing I would just mention, John, you, you asked a question regarding them. Um, you know, our expectation now, you know, just kind of looking at the, um, the market implied uh, rate environment is that, you know, NIM is probably down a few basis points in the third quarter and then relatively stable through the rest of the year. Got it. No, thank you. <clears throat> that's, a, that's very helpful. And, and, and just lastly, the confidence in your through cycle deposit beta of about 40%. It looks like, you know, we have a number of banks that are turning to the high 40s and into the 50s. You know, just what gives you the confidence in that through cycle beta expectation of around 40? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, we're, we're coming, our calculations show us at about 39% in, in uh, the current uh, beta, and we we're indicating, uh, you know, mid-40s is where we'll land. And, you know, I, I think it just goes back to some of the things that we talked about earlier where we did have a big flight in of, of deposits. We think, well, we have loans that have come down given the capital actions, and so that gives us a little bit more flexibility with pricing. But of course, there'll be pressure uh, as it relates to deposit betas just as we as we go through it. But all that is kind of baked into our, our mid-40s uh, uh, guide. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks, John. Next, we can go to Ibrahim Punawala with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Good morning, Ibrahim. How are you? Good, how are you? Good morning. I just wanted to follow up on this capital build. Uh, it, it, it's obviously a big topic. As we think about future RWA optimization, uh, remind, I, I think you mentioned some of the low-hanging fruit, I guess, things that were EPS neutral. It seems like you executed on those this quarter. As we look forward to, I think you mentioned some action in the back half, some into 2024. How uh, punitive are those going to be from an EPS standpoint that we should think about? I'm assuming that's in your guidance for 23, but give us a sense of just the EPS hit from these actions and how much more of RW of optimization that should we think about between now and let's say year in 24? Yeah, great question, Ibrahim. And so let me maybe unpack it a little bit in terms of the different types of actions that we are likely to take. Uh, you know, uh, one, as an example, is we're going to be kind of winding down a cash provisioning of business. So that'll have very minimal impact uh, from an earnings perspective because it's not that big of a business, but it is a, a pretty significant user of capital in terms of risk-weighted assets. So, you know, that's uh, one area and one example of, you know, how we still think that there's, you know, low to neutral sort of opportunity in terms of uh, enhancing or improving the risk-weighted asset position. You know, we'll continue to be focused on uh, reducing our uh, MSR, our mortgage servicing right portfolio, uh, over the course of the next uh, uh, several quarters. 
you know, that's an area that, um, again, you know, it has some impact, but it's not significant. And probably more importantly, it allows us to rebalance you know, the size of the mortgage uh, exposure, mortgage uh, portfolio relative to the overall size of the business. We'll continue to look at uh, a, a kind of similarly uh, uh, mortgage loan sales uh, out of the union bank portfolio. Again, that um, uh, reduces our uh, concentration in California uh, and uh, should have uh, minimal sort of impact uh, kind of on a go-forward basis. And then there's just, there's just a number of other things, uh, similar sort of structures that we've done. Uh, but the other thing that we're working on between now and the end of the year, which uh, will kind of position us well to be able to uh, continue to improve on a risk-weighted asset basis is, uh, you know, setting up some securitization uh, programs uh, related to uh, some of our other uh, balance sheet uh, uh, asset positions. That's helpful. And just one follow-up. Strategically, I think the one question is, uh, this environment should be ideal for USB to take market share. Competitors are under pressure. Clearly, your balance sheet holding up quite well. Give us a sense of just how much of a constrained capital levels are today as you think about getting new customer growth, picking up market share, adding uh, sort of uh, uh, maximizing the union franchise, just how, how much of a restrictive factor capital is to accomplish all of those? Yeah, go ahead, Andy. Go ahead. Uh, so, Aaron, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a constraint. It, we're focused on profitable growth. We have a diverse set of business products and services that allow us to grow in a capital efficient way. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. The, the Union Bank customer base, uh, about 80% of the consumer small businesses are single service customers. Their penetration on credit cards is about half what ours is across the uh, legacy U.S. banks. So we have a lot of opportunities to deepen relationships in a very capital efficient way given the broad product set that we have. So that, that is an opportunity that we, we're very uh, much uh, focused on, looking forward to, and not feeling constrained. Yeah, and many of those uh, single service are balance sheet uh, today. Uh, deepening the relationship will be uh, as much focused on fee-based sort of businesses, which are capital efficient, as Andy said. Got it. Thanks for taking my questions. Hmm? And next we'll move to uh, Ken Usden with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Hey, Ken. Uh, hey, good morning, guys. Um, hey, a really good uh, fee result this quarter. And I, I just wanted to ask you, as I'm looking at the, the payment slide on, on page 19, it does look like the year-over-year growth rates uh, did all slow versus the first quarter. Um, you know, can you just talk about what's going on across the payments with regards to um, just where the consumer is and how you expect you know, uh, a, a corporate uh, spending to trend as you as you look ahead, uh, given the, the potential for a slowing economy. Yeah, and of course that's that's the hundred thousand dollar question is whether or not we actually move into a recession or not. But uh, I, I think broadly, from a macro perspective, some of the things that we're seeing, you know, is that uh, some of the excess savings that consumers have held in the past. Uh, has come, come down to really pre-pandemic levels at this particular point in time. So I think that manifests itself in kind of a normalization of consumer spend. Uh, so we are, are, we are seeing uh, what was, you know, very strong consumer spend starting to normalize and uh, soften, if you will. I mean, yesterday was uh, retail sales information that came out a little bit softer than maybe expected. Uh, we're seeing some of those same dynamics uh, in the payments business, uh, you know, where, uh, sales, uh, you know, for example, in the 
in the merchant side of the equation, you know, uh, slower, softer sort of retail sales. But, you know, there's still a fair amount of uh, travel uh, expenditure that's uh, taking place. So uh, customers are certainly choosing and maybe being a little more choosy as to where they're uh, spending their dollars. Um, you know, some of the dynamics that we're seeing is, you know, while, while sales have um, softened maybe a bit, the margins uh, in some of the businesses have actually improved. So on the credit card side of the equation, where, uh, where sales have come down a little bit, uh, the, the margins uh, are actually a little stronger. Um, you know, the, uh, on the corporate payment side of the equation, margins continue to get stronger because uh, T&E spend at the corporate, uh, in, in the commercial corporate uh, sectors, uh, is continuing to be reasonably strong. So, uh, you know, we continue to kind of look out the rest of the year, you know, on the merchant acquiring side of the equation of, uh, you know, revenue kind of in that uh, uh, high single digits uh, sort of uh, uh, range. Uh, on the uh, credit card fee revenue still in that uh, uh, mid single digits and uh, you know the uh, on the corporate payment side of the equation it'll normalize but it'll kind of normalize in that high single digits range that's kind of the what we're seeing what we're kind of forecasting at this particular point in time based upon consumer behavior got it and one follow-up on capital um, can you just give us, just so we all have the right number from your perspective, where CET1 was this quarter inclusive of uh, AFS unrealized losses and, and also just, you know, your view of if rates stay the same here, what that pull to par looks like as you look forward to that year-end 24 point? Thanks. Yeah, so uh, if you were to embed the AOCI into the CET1 calculation under Category 2, it would have been at 6.9%. And, you know, we expect that based upon all of our capital actions, uh, you know, to, you know, get to our kind of our target levels by the end of 2024. We have, we have the game plan in order to be able to get there. We feel confident about that. Okay. Can, can, do, do you do just have the, the AFS piece of what does pull to par by the end of the year? Because it's hard for us to understand how much the risk-weighted asset part might be, but at least we can kind of track to your view of the portfolio maturity. Yeah, do you have that, John? Yeah, it, so uh, in terms of the, the uh, burn down between here and the end of 24, it's about 25% or so. Yeah. Okay, got it. Thank you. Next, we can go to Erica Najarian with UBS. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. I, I need to ask the capital question again, um, just because it's been such a big deal for your stock. And I'm wondering if you could indulge me in some sort of, in some sort of cave woman math here. So 6.9% CT1, um, you have six quarters um, to um, generate capital, uh, you know, based on what you're earning, um, you know, today, um, you could add another 120 basis points, right, um, for six quarters times times 20, um, and that'll get you to 8%. So given that you, you, you've mentioned both Terry and John throughout the call, some additional RWA actions, you know, how much can RWA actions enhance that, you know, potential for, you know, 8% um, fully loaded CET1 by 4Q24, you know, just on earnings? How much, how much can you add from RWA mitigation? Yeah, so maybe just kind of unpacked it a little bit, you know, we still expect, Erica, that, you know, our uh, the, the benefit from capital accretion or earnings accretion is going to be somewhere in that uh, 20 to 25 basis points on average. And, you know, a couple of different things to kind of keep in mind while there's a little more pressure 
on the revenue side of the equation, you know, the things that will start to come into the equation is a lot lower merger and integration charges next year. Uh, you know, we'll be substantially done with that as well as, uh, you know, the uh, fact that, you know, uh, by the end of the year, we will uh, really be at kind of full run rate from a cost synergy standpoint. So I think that there's a number of, uh, a number of things uh, just in terms of why we feel confident that that accretion level uh, starts to accelerate or creep up uh, from where we're at today. Um, you know, and then I think when you end up going through, uh, you know, John talked a little bit about the burn down being at about uh, 25% uh, between now and the end of the year, and that's based upon market implied. Uh, and, but, you know, also keep in mind, as we have said, is, you know, we have, uh, you know, put in, into place some hedging strategies to protect us from the upside risk that might exist, uh, you know, if rates were to move up. So we feel pretty good about, you know, where that is going to come in. And then the rest of it is really uh, tied to, you know, risk-weighted asset actions, many of which I ended up uh, talking about. And again, we have a, we have a, a pretty uh, confident game plan uh, with respect to our ability to reduce risk-weighted assets in order to be able to achieve, uh, you know, the, uh, the targets that we need to hit. Uh, let me just ask it another way, again, just because, you know, it feels like, some of the good stuff that's going on in the company is being ignored because of this this capital question regarding category two. You know, based on your outlook and under a reasonable range of scenarios for the economy, do you think you could get to eight and a half to nine percent fully loaded CET one by four Q twenty four? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And next, we can go to John McDonald with Atomic. Research, please go ahead. Hi, uh, Hi John. Thanks, yeah. thanks Terry. Um, yeah, just one last follow-up on that walk, you know, starting from the 6.9, getting to 8.5 to 9. So is that the idea that the AOCI is kind of like a 200, 210 basis point drag today, and that'll shrink to, in your numbers, something like 150 or that kind of drag by the end of next year? Uh, yes. Okay. Um and does your walk include like FDIC assessment and Cecil phase in things like that? Yes. Okay. Um, the, the next question was just on credit. How do you see uh, charge off trajectory from here? I know you've said normalized 50, you won't get there for a while, but the jumping off point is, is 35 basis points, I guess, this quarter. How do you see it kind of playing out from here? Yeah, you know, it's, it's going to continue to normalize for all the different things we have been talking about and I think the industry has been talking about. You know, our expectation is that, that 35 creeps up into the kind of mid-40s by maybe the end of the year, early next year, and then it kind of normalizes around 50 basis points once we get into 2024. Okay, got it. Um, and does the full-year guidance on expenses for this year incorporate uh, some achievement of merger saves in the fourth quarter of this year? Uh, in terms of cost energies, or yeah, yes, 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 yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it gets us to the run rate, John, of the full 900 by the end of the quarter. Yep. So when, when we when we get into 2024, you know, we will have achieved uh, a full run rate of 900 million dollars of cost energies. And you will have achieved most of those by uh, the fourth quarter of this year. By the end of the fourth quarter. Yep. Okay, and that's built into the guidance for the full year this year. Yep. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, John. And we can go to Chris Katowski with Oppenheimer. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think last quarter you shared that uh, the 
du average duration of your securities portfolio went down from like 4.3 to 3.8 years or something like that. And I, I wonder if you could give us the uh, similar trend in the second quarter and, and the outlook for the balance of the year and just your philosophy in general about uh, 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 reinvesting maturities. Is that kind of going into cash or, or are you kind of maintaining the duration that you have? Yeah, yeah. The the duration that we had talked about with respect to the FS portfolio was 3.8 years, uh, and it has continued to come down a little bit. Um, you know, not not measurably, but down a little bit from there. Um, you know, our game plan, I guess, is that we're going to continue to work on shortening the duration of the AFS portfolio. Yeah, and it kind of uh, helps us de-risk that. Uh, meaning we'll keep uh, you know more in in. Uh, uh, in uh, you know short-term uh, sort of securities, um, you know whether it's that or cash, but it'll it'll be kind of a combination. And and on the HTM portfolio, is there a similar kind of move to shorten duration, or or are you comfortable where it is? Yeah, uh, well, with respect to the HTM portfolio, that's just kind of going to run down over time or burn down over time. Uh, you know, we're not adding to the HTM portfolio at this particular point. Okay. All righty. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we'll move to uh, Vivek Junenjo with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hey, Vivek. Sorry if it's repetitive given the multiple calls. So I guess a couple of things. On merchant processing, any color on why it's up only 2% year on year um, in terms of fees? I, I hear you on the on the travel slowing, but that's, uh, you know, that's also a lower fee. What's caused such a sharp slowdown, and what turns that around to the mid-single digits, Terry? Yeah, some of some of it's uh, year-over-year, uh, you know, comp and how it'll kind of play out. But you know, the biggest driver of Vivek in the merchant processing uh, at this particular point is uh, the fact that you know the travel airline specifically is continuing to become a higher uh, portion of the overall mix. Uh, you know that we think is starting to, to stabilize. In other words, most of the much of that uh, growth has been in the airline space, but we think that that kind of stabilizes. Uh, airline happens to have a lower margin, and so that's the dynamic that you're seeing. Got it. Okay. And OCI, your loss seems to have gone up. Did did you not get any benefit from the hedges you put on, or is there some something else going on underneath? Yeah, I think ahead, the, uh, uh, the the investment portfolio is AOCI went uh, declined or the mark declined by about 250 million link quarter, but rates went up you know 50 to 60 basis points upon the the points of the curve that that matter to to the portfolio. So um, it's not a totally flat uh, as we talked about. There's a duration to that book, and so you you would expect a, a wider mark given the higher level of rates. So I I. I I think with the hedges that we we have put in place that helped uh, mute that it could have been you know could have been higher and we continue to add hedges uh, across uh, that portfolio and pick our spots uh, when we see rates uh, fall. Thank you. And we'll go to Gerard Cassidy with RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, Gerard. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, Terry, um, you, you talked a bit about a normalization in net charge-offs uh, moving into 2024. Can you share with us what kind of assumptions you're using to get to that normalization rate in charge-offs? 
both economic and just, you know, the way the customer base may behave? You want to talk about that? You know, from, from an economic standpoint, uh, Gerard, I'll, I'll start. This is Andy. Uh, we think sure. there's probably a fairly equal weight probability that we'll either see a soft landing or a mild recession. And if we do get a recession, uh, our models would indicate it would be short and shallow, either late this year or early in 2024. And you know there's still pricing pressure and the inflation's not solved, so we have one more rate hike uh, by the end of the year modeled in. Uh, and then, but on the other hand, as Terry mentioned, you know, excess savings has come down significantly and consumer spending is slowing. So the Fed is getting its desired outcome. So big picture, we think the Fed's close to being done. Uh, and as I said, sort of this probability of either shallow and, and soft or mild recession and or a soft landing is what we've modeled in to get to those assumptions Terry's articulated. A couple of things I would just add, maybe from a portfolio dynamic perspective. I, you know, we're seeing nice growth in terms of credit card balances. You know, and as as credit card balances both increase and you know it normalizes, you know, you'll start to see that ratio going up because you know that's a little higher mix for us. And then I think it may be somewhat lumpy, but it's kind of incorporated into it as just you know continuing to work through commercial real estate office space, you know, over the course of the next few years. Very good. And then I apologize if you address this question, but with the expectation of the Basel III end gain capital requirements coming shortly, and this week the um, disclosures that it seems like residential mortgages may be exposed to higher risk-weighted assets, mm -hmm. how are you guys thinking about that, you know, in terms of risk of RWA strategies if the mortgages do get a bigger weight and other areas are, are greater than expected? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, a lot of our actions, for example, with respect to mortgages uh, and, 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 and that particular business is just continuing to, uh, you know, de-risk, so to speak. Uh, so we're, you know, kind of trying to take that into consideration. You know, our expectation right now, Gerard, is that it's probably going to be fairly neutral to maybe just a little bit of a benefit uh, it, based upon everything that we're seeing in terms of the end game. But we really have to wait and see what the final rules say, uh, and you know, and then apply it to our specific portfolio. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Gerard. And next, we go to Betsy Grassick with Morgan Stanley. Morning, Betsy. Hi. Good morning. Um, just a, a couple of quick follow-ups. Um, one, the asset sales that you did this quarter was that at the beginning of the quarter or the end? I'm just trying to understand how much like revenue from that portfolio you have in 2Q? Yeah, most, most of them were completed at the end of the, closer to the end of the second quarter, so in the June timeframe. Okay. And then the revenue outlook for the full year, is that based on June 30 balance sheet, or is that also including the RWA actions you're planning on taking between now and year end? Uh, both. It, it, it incorporates our capital actions in terms of what we expect to execute on between now and the end of the year. Okay, got it. All right. Okay, thank you. That's it. Mm -hmm. Betsy. And next we can move to Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Security. Please go ahead. Morning, Mike. Morning, Mike. Hi. Uh, well, on the, the capital issue, um, I asked last quarter, do you think there's any chance that you need to raise capital or cut the dividend? I'll just uh, ask you again. Or what... I mean, I, people were doing these, these mechanistic analyses where they would take the unrealized securities losses, reduce that from tangible equity, give you no credit, 
and then say you would need to raise capital. So now that you've met your year-end capital target, um, I guess would you reiterate or to what degree would you reiterate no capital increase, no dividend cut? And in addition, if you could put it in a broader context, uh, the vice chair of the Fed, uh, Barr last week said that actually the uh, economic value of equity at banks goes up because of higher value of deposits. So it seems like he signs on to a lot of the analysis that we analysts do. So just if you could comment on the bigger picture about your capital and the flexibility there. Yeah, Mike, this is Andy. And as, as Terry mentioned, so we, we accelerated our WA actions, got to 9-1 at the end of the second quarter, uh, well ahead of our 9-0 by the end of the year. We expect to be at least 9-5 by the end of the year, if not better. And we have a game plan we're comfortable with and confident enough to get to 9 under the Basel, under the uh, CAT 2 definition by the end of 2024. So all those things make us confident in the, in the capital walk that we talked about and the actions we're taking. And then on the, the negative side, you and a lot of uh, regional banks have continued to lower guidance on NII, and here we go again with that. And um, look, I mean, rates are went up faster than you or anyone had expected. The yield curve is a lot more inverted. I guess competition has picked up more than expected. Uh, what inning do you think you're in in terms of this downward revision for NII? Do you, do you think you're kind of there now? Um, you know, you said third quarter could be down, you know, a, a little bit. Um, and as you exit the year, do you think you maintained that that third quarter level? Or well, I think you said NIM would be flat after that, but you, I'm not, not sure if you mentioned NII. So it's a downward revision for NII done uh, or eighth inning, uh, seventh inning. And what does that mean for kind of run rate going to next year? Yeah, so again, um, we obviously, you heard the guidance with respect to NII and, and NIM, you know, we expect it to be a few basis points down in the third quarter and then relatively stable from there. <clears throat> uh, you know, the uh, I, obviously this is rate, <clears throat> excuse me, it's uh, Fed policy kind of dependent. So, you know, we're trying to look at what the current environment uh, looks like. But, you know, we feel uh, like, <clears throat> you know, if I had to kind of, but, you know, what inning are we in where I think we're in the late innings uh, simply because of where the Fed is from a monetary policy standpoint. So while there may, you know, continue to be a little bit of downward pressure, uh, you know, we don't see it as being, you know, significant uh, from here. Andy, what would you add? You know, uh, Mike, the other thing I'd add is I, I think one of the benefits of our business model is, is the diversity of revenue. So, you know, even in a stressed environment on deposits, which you're absolutely right about, we have the payments revenue, the trust revenue, the commercial products revenue, and on top of all that, you know, $900 million of cost energies that we're going to act on. So we're pulling lots of levers, not just on margin. Okay, thank you. You bet. And next we have a follow-up from John McDonald with Autonomous Research. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, Terry. Thanks. One more on the uh, mitigation and optimization opportunity. Uh, you know, originally you talked about 50 basis points of opportunity to harness this year. Obviously, you got 40 this quarter, um, and now it sounds like the total is more. Just trying to—is there a way to size how much more you might see out there between the remainder of this year and next year? You know, relative to the original 50 you were targeting. Yeah, you know, um, again, the the 50 that we were targeting, we were, we knew we were. Uh, had a high level of confidence in terms of being able to achieve it because they were low to kind of neutral impact and they were things that we could kind of execute on. The 
we, we definitely believe that as we get into 2024, uh, you know, the standing up, which, which, you know, obviously takes a little longer, standing up of securitization programs and many of the actions that I talked about earlier, you know, gets us uh, to, you know, where we need to be uh, from a capital perspective when you take into consideration the burn down, et cetera. So, uh, you know, that, um, that uh, opportunity, I think, is, you know, Certainly, probably probably in line with uh, uh, another 50 basis points would be my guess. Okay. And when you say no uh, impact or low impact, we did see some this quarter, like in terms of the charge-offs and taxes. I guess they're not run rate. Is that what you mean? But like you could have episodic one quarter yeah. type impacts? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, conti- we'll continue to see that as we reposition the balance sheet. But again, you know, those impacts are all taken into consideration when we think about the net uh, RWA impacts. Okay. And, and again, your, your target that you want to get to for the fully loaded by the end of next year is what? When you say uh, you yeah. To... Uh, well, it'll be, you know, fully adopted. It'd be, you know, roughly eight and a half, nine percent. Okay. Thank you. And we have no further, further questions at this time. I'll now turn it back to George Anderson. Please continue. Thank you for listening to our earnings call. Please contact the Investor Relations Department if you have any follow-up questions. And this concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.